Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher b'char bin v'im tovim, ve'ratzah ve'divrehim ha'ne'emarim be'emet. Baruch atah Adonai, ha'boker b'torah uv'moshe avdo uv'yisrael amo uv'in v'ye ha'emet v'zedek. Bizkut Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Well, Shalom Alechem to everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Beshalak Haftarah. Get you some. So, Shamerman and Chasis Baz here, and let's get right away to it. All right, Baruch Hashem. So, we're in, uh, in Shoftim and Judges, and we got a few few characters we're going to look at before we dive into our, our Haftarah. So first of all, we have we have probably the the main character Devora, and just like kind of peculiar peculiar figure because interestingly, like she is known if you read the half Torah to be leader over all Israel. Hmm. And so it's kind of interesting because it's it's really the first time you see you see a woman in charge and running the whole show. Right. So who is it? So there's something extremely special about about this woman. <clears throat> and so we're in the period of Judges. This is after Yehoshua, in between the time of Yehoshua and Shmuel. And Devorah is known as, she's the fourth of the judges to lead Israel in this time, this difficult time where nations are coming in and ruling over them and Israel's steeped in sin and idolatry. And so she's the one who really leads them out of that. Hmm. So we're in about... Uh, 1106 before Common Era, uh, Devorah was actually from the tribe of Naphtali and was actually one of the, known as one of the seven prophetesses in in the Tanakh. Wow. So this is along with Sarah, Miriam, Hananiah, Abigail, Hulda, and Esther. And so of all the of all the judges, she was actually the only one to actually have the title prophet as well, like prophetess, I should say. Huh. So the one out of seven, she she's the only one with that. Oh yeah. Wow. So yeah. So she's building up the special category here. <laughs> mm-hmm. The, the text the text even highlights this whole special aspect to her. It calls her Eshet Lapidot. Oh. And it means that God God loved Devora. And he has this kind of this, this dialogue between her and Hashem, her being a, a, a prophetess. says, you have increased my light, so I will increase your light. You will shine as a guiding light to the Jewish people. So because of her diligence, encouraging people to mitzvot and, and Torah and observance, like Hashem actually allowed her the spirit of prophecy. And she's also known as this Eshet Lapidot, this, this fiery woman, because she had a fiery enthusiasm. She was delivered all these inspiring speeches uh, she would encourage people to a passive Torah. She was a wise and, and potted, uh, pious and mo- modest woman. <clears throat> and even breaking down her name, you have the name Devorah. And in Hebrew, this means bee. <laughs> but it's interesting because in Aramaic, there's this hornet. And so it's kind of interesting because these are like these two different uh, contradictory like characteristics, if you will. You got the hornet that is is like this aggressive creature and this bee whose whose sting can be painful but it, it's known for producing honey very sweet things 
And so this goes to her name, uh, goes to teach us a very, very profound lesson in that, you know, it's, it's man's duty to attack his evil inclination, like with the aggression with a hornet. Mm. But there's also the idea of, uh, the, the, the bee producing sweet honey. This is the ideal way for a person's life to embody the sweetness of spiritual growth and accomplishment and service to others is, is for him to aggressively attack evil inclination within himself. I mean, I would be able that's to up. do that because, I mean, that's what it takes because the, the Yetzer Hara is definitely aggressive. And I'm pretty sure we all know that. But, you know, to think about fight fire with fire kind of thing. Definitely, definitely. So she goes to teach that, that whole lesson just within her name. The whole idea of like the, the sweetness of spiritual growth and, and using that to, to battle the evil inclination and rise above that. We mentioned that a little bit uh, last half tour as well. How to do that like practically. Yeah. So it brings us to the next Eshet um, Chayil, if you will, the next woman of valor. Oh, yeah. Yael. And she comes in the, towards the, the end of the, the first part of this, this half Torah, the woman who slays uh, Sisera. And um, in it she, um, she ends up giving him milk and drink. He becomes very drowsy. And that mentions this phrase that she covers him with a blanket, uh, shmicha. And the commentaries actually explain, they go in this, this depth, that if you switch around the letters of shmicha, you have the word koshmini. It says, my name is here. Ooh. This is an illusion that, that Yael did not actually sin with Sisra, but rather God was very much a part of the, the whole plan to bring him into her tent for that whole instant to happen. Wow. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of con might connotate the idea that she actually sinned with him, but Shalom, like it's implied through there that she actually did not. Well, you know, and you can think about too how there are different things. Like in Mishle, it talks about uh, being led away by your own desires. And, you know, you can kind of see the, the overlay of what looks like something that's going to be potentially sinful, very immoral, is actually something that has this hidden uh, salvation, so to say, within it. And it's basically, you know, why was the mother of Melek David looked at as someone who was sinful? Why was the mother of Mashiach Yeshua looked at as someone who was sinful? But... In the end, it turned out that these were the most pure people that you could have ever experience, you know, as far as their accounts. So you have Yael fitting that same pattern in that same, uh, uh, just basically just fitting that same pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. Like that's that's just like a the, a key concept to really ground yourself in. The whole idea, like the whole associated with evil, but yet, like it's truly, truly a miraculous and wonderful thing <clears throat> that brings salvation. Ah, the the bee wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Oh wow! Did you just make a pun with the world's name? 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, yeah, you know, just a little bit more about uh, this whole idea um, from Mishnah Rabbi Eliezer says she was actually equal to the four matriarchs, Sarah, Becha, uh, Rachel, Leah. Mm. And it mentions that her merit, um, that that a great salvation came through her, was that she was a worthy woman who fulfilled her husband's wishes, and so she was very loyal uh, in her. Um, in her covenant with her husband. Wow. Uh, going back to Devorah, this is actually a independently wealthy woman dwelt in the city of Atara. She owned these palm trees in Yeriko, orchards in Rama, oil producing olives in Bethel, and white earth in Tor Macha. So she owned all this uh, land in different places everywhere. So very, very wealthy uh, woman. And it mentions that in the Song of Deborah, the women preceded the men because here the redemption came through women, mostly Deborah and Yael. Wow. Brings us to our, our third character in the story, which is, uh, many commentaries say this is actually Deborah's husband. This is Barak. Really? It says he was actually one that served during Yehoshua's lifetime and after his death. And therefore he was brought and placed besides Devorah. At that time, Devorah was shown to the HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeems, or shows that HaKadosh Baruch Hu redeems Israel from the nations through people who go to the synagogue morning and evening. And later on, we're going to get to a verse um, that talks about the curse of Miros. And this is actually was done by Barak with 400 shofars. Ooh. So I'll mention more of that as we get to it. All and right. lastly, we have our, our villain in this story. The villain. Boo. <laughs> the payment of our story, if you will. <laughs> Sisera, captain of the army of Canaan. Canaan. And mm. it mentions that there is there is no one who is really as mighty as he. Midrash Abba Goran, it states that at the age of 30, he conquered the world. At the sound of his voice, walls of the city fell and beasts of the field froze. It is said that he once went down to the Kishon River to drink water and caught fish with his beard. When he went to war, 900 horses drew his chariot. Yet in the end, he was delivered in the hands of a woman. Wow. And so you just got to like understand like the the power of this guy. This isn't one just some some tribe, some rebel tribes out there um, who were just randomly attacking Bnei Israel. This was like a, a a powerful force. This guy was known for his strength. He was feared throughout the entire land. And just to get you the size of his army, it's only mentions in the text really the nine hundred chariots. Um, right. But the Targum actually elaborates just how many men there were. And he says he attacked the people of Israel with 40,000 captains, 50,000 swordsmen, 60,000 spear-bearing soldiers, 70,000 shield-bearing soldiers, 80,000 archers, and this is all aside from 900 chariots with their riders, and the thousands who were with them. Man. And so you're talking about a huge, huge army that's waging war against Israel at this point. And 
it's kind of interesting because the past um, half stories we did have been from the prophets and has all been talking about exile, how to deal with exile, um, maybe enemies being punished by Hashem, or maybe hey, there's a future redemption to come. But this is this is parallels the parsha in that it's very very much a very exciting parsha, and the people take a very active role in their in their salvation. You know, Dvorak actually calls Barak to wage war, and they go out and they they have this mighty they have this battle, and Hashem actually wages the war for them. Wow, I mean that's the same thing that happens in this parsha as well. You know, like the whole be silent before me and Hashem is going to uh, work on your behalf kind of thing. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because you would think Hashem, you know, I would, I'm kind of in trouble right now, kind of a little bit of a crisis going on and uh, need your help. And he's like, I've already got this. Just one second, please. <laughs> he's just like, can I finish? <laughs> yeah. Right. So just to elaborate, uh, these, these, these partial parallels, I'll go through them, just point by point real quick, and then we'll dive into our half Torah. Bring it on. Does any leader deny the existence of God? Sister and, and Pharaoh both did this. You have this idea that God wages war on Israel's enemies from the heavens, like we talked about. Um, God confuses the enemy camp. God drowns Israel's enemies in water. God completely annihilates the enemy. The enemy leader survives, though only temporarily in the case of, you know, Sisera. Right. The woman leads a song of praise. The songs that follow the Israelite victories are works of poetry, and the songs visually appear in the Torah as this magnificent brick form on the page. Mm. And so you got a lot of a lot of interesting parallels there between our Parsha and, and maybe one of the reasons why uh, Hazal had it implemented for this Parsha so people would be like oh well I definitely know what this I definitely know it's uh, Beshalach they're talking about they're talking about flooding enemies of water they're talking about an arrogant leader who you know denies God's punishment man that's beautiful if you think about all the dots connecting you know and how that's all been established for us by our forefathers and it's just kind of like being able to tie everything together and search it out. It's just amazing. Man, that's actually a Talmudic dic uh, dictum, diction, you know, all that, the, the actions of the fathers are assigned to the children. Wow. You know, and so <laughs> whatever they did, you know, it's going to play out in our lives and, and it's just like the sign for us to, to guide us on the path we should go. Baruch Hashem. Stay connected. Yeah. All right, so into the Haftarah we go. Okay, so we're going to focus mostly on, for the sake of, uh, of time, the song of Devorah, and also for the sake of, you know, not being too repetitive because she actually goes through everything that happened in uh, the, the Parsha, or in the, not the Parsha, but the, the section before it in Chapter 4. Okay. So, uh, uh, first of all, I want to, you know, kind of defend Barak because there's this, there's this line that, you know, they have this dialogue and she tells him, Hey, go wage war. And he comes there and he's like, if you go with me yeah. and a lot of, a lot of people get, you know, that's the reaction for those people. It's, it's like a laugh. It's like, okay, well, 
here you are, man. You're, you're telling your wife that you're only going to go to war if she's right there by you. Hmm. But, you know, this, I, I'd like to, to argue that this wasn't his character. This is a guy who, who stood at the time, Yehoshua, who was in the synagogues, who uh, was very devoted to Torah and, and encouraging people. Um, and so he understood the, the higher, the higher realm. He understood that, that his wife, Devorah, had so much merits and he was willing to sacrifice his glory and his, his name being attached to the victory for the sake that his, his men should not perish in battle, for the sake that they should, should live, uh, to sing Hashem's praises together. Wow. So that's maybe, maybe my take with there. Well, I think that's a great point to make because it can be seen so many times that the the man is like the pushover and like the woman is like, if it wasn't for me, then everything would be gone. You know, like that whole picture and spotlight is cast sometimes, but it's kind of like we have to understand, especially from Judaism, a Jewish mindset, you know, the man and the woman are on equal footing, you know, it's like the man is the priest of the home, but the woman is the Shekinah. And so if you think about how that relationship works, you know, you, you're kind of, you're like messing up the seesaw or the balance or the scales, you know. And uh, one of the most beautiful things that I've ever read from Midrashic commentary is that everything we know about Abraham, we need to make sure we understand that and maybe even more when it comes to Sarah. And it was just kind of this beautiful thing where we may see the husband or we may see the wife expressed more in the written literature. But it's like, let's not forget their other half because they're probably on the same par, if not better. So it's interesting and amazing that you bring that up about Barak. And it's kind of like, of course, Barak's name is close to Baruch, which means to bless. So, you know, yes. there's that. <laughs> It's just it's just amazing, you know. And you you mentioned the the height of the the matriarchs, and you know it's really it's really a testimony to their humility that they're not written so much down in the written Torah, but throughout the oral Torah, it highlights them, it elevates them, and Judaism is all, has always been a religion to esteem women oh, and not to put them down and put them in a box like maybe other religions out there in the world. And really, this half Torah just 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 to kind of tag on that. This half, half towards it is a testimony uh, to uh, to to women and their their importance. You know the importance of a mother, the importance of a wife, the importance of of a daughter of Israel. Because before any other nations even had the thought of even allowing the woman a, a, a decent life, mm. you know here you have a woman leading an entire nation of people. Come on. So it just, it's a testimony to, uh, I guess, you know, Hashem's, Hashem's view, his perspective, and how Israel and the Torah has always been really ahead of its time and leading, leading the generations um, in the positive direction. I mean, and let's not forget, too, that, you know, think about the examples that have to be expressed within the confines of their homes, because... What would give Yael the unction, the courage, 
the integrity and just kind of like, I'm going to do this and I have a plan. Like, what kind of home must she be a part of? You know, as a Eshet Kail, a beloved wife of her husband, to just be like, yeah, I'm going to take on a giant and I'm going to bring him into a tent and I'm going to kill him. Like, I got this. It's just kind of like, well, uh, if that's the case, then who are you married to? <laughs> you know? Yes. That's so true. You know, we, we mentioned uh, in the first part, there's this idea that, you know, divorce sitting by a palm tree. Yes. Let's and talk about that. Let's talk about that. Let's kind of mention that real fast. Uh, that whole idea that her sitting in the palm tree, why was she doing that? Why? Because there's, there, it's against, like, halakha, against Torah law for a woman to be secluded with a, with a man. Right? And so... Right. She was administering judgments upon the people, and so she chose to do it, even though it would have been permissible if the door was open in her home. She didn't honor a palm tree to to go above suspicion. Mm, I don't know. So it connotates like modesty and openness and being above above reproach, not even having the appearance of evil. And wow. so she was very considerate of of uh, of the halacha and how others might view her. You know. I mean, there's there's this idea, you know, of course, you don't want to speak ill of anyone. You want to judge everyone favorably. Yeah. But there's also there's also the other side of that. There's also the side of making sure you don't put yourselves in a situations that might cause other, others to sin and speak ill of you. And so we have to take responsibility and have integrity on our, our end, even go above and beyond that. And so we don't cause anyone else to sin that's not to give an excuse to their actions but it's just something for us to be aware about and another way that we can cover our, our brothers and sisters man be above reproach man all right so we have this this mention and five three says, listen, kings of strange nation who joined up with Sisera, pay attention, princes who allied with Yavin, beware of ever battling against Bnei Israel again, because I belong to Hashem, I will sing. I will sing praises of Hashem, the God of Israel, in song. And so there's this idea that the kings and princes, there's this idea, it's allusion to Torah scholars and students, whom she devoted the first part of the song. Um, but there's also this idea, why did she say the word, uh, Anuki twice. And so this is this elaboration and the Midrash that this refers to these two mountains. Oh man. Mount Tavor and Mount Carvel. Cool. <laughs> and this is was a little bit important last time. Um, but it says these mountains traveled very far from their original location, hope of being selected for giving the Torah. And Instead, there's there's this idea that because they're so eager, eager to have the Torah given on them, um, and they were rejected at, at Sinai when he declared Anoki, I'm a Shem, only once at Har Tavor, following the miraculous salvation from Sisera, Devor will poetically sing Anoki twice, and so this is this is the reason why she says Anoki twice. It's this reward of these mountains who want to be so close to a Shem. And they were rejected, but this is their reward because they desired to be close to him and be a part of that uh, monumental event in history. Wow. 
<laughs> well, get you some of that as far as desiring and being eager to have the will of Hashem carried out in our life. Amen. What I mean, if Hashem did that for mountains, what would he do for his children? Very true. When we get to uh, the next verse, and 5-4, Midrash, with Midrash commentary, it says, Hashem, after you left Se'ar, Esau's descendants who were offered the Torah but declined it, after you stepped out of the field of Edom, another nation that rejected the Torah, you offered the Torah to the Jews who willingly accepted it. At Matan Torah, the earth trembled, even the heavens dripped, even the clouds dripped water. They sprinkled the dew of revival upon B'nai Israel, who had passed upon hearing your mighty voice. Wow. So it goes on, mountain, verse 5, mountains melted away before Shem and quarreling, seeking to be chosen for the giving of the Torah. This Sinai was chosen, and it too trembled and melted when the Shekinah, Hashem, the God of Israel, was revealed on it. And there's, there's this idea about the, the whole giving of the Torah. It was offered to the nations, and they rejected it. But Israel decided to accept it. And there's in the Talmud, Shabbos uh, 88a, it mentioned God created the world on the condition that it would survive only if Israel accepted the Torah. But if the nation refused to do, to, do so, the universe would cease to exist completely. And just kind of take a little little practical note here. All right. You know, when, you know, there's, there's throughout history, you know, other nations that look down at Jewish nation and they said, oh, you're thinking like this whole idea, this condition, you're trying to be self-righteous or you're trying to be legalistic or you're trying to do too much. And, you know, if anyone ever, you know, comments on you trying to be legalistic, legalistic or you're trying to be self-righteous, you can respond to them by saying, hey, I'm not trying to be self-righteous. I'm, we're saving the world. I mean. So that whole concept, you know, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm just saving the world. Do you want to join me? Uh, there you go. <laughs> it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be that I'm the only one doing this. You could be doing this as well. Would you like some kosher food? <laughs> it's not the idea of trying to be better than anyone else by, by keeping these commandments. It's the idea that, hey, if, if, if we didn't, if Israel didn't keep the Torah and study the Torah, then the world would, would be destroyed. And so, you know, just a little perspective on that. No, we're not trying to be self-righteous. We're just trying to save the world. I mean, and it does escalate very quickly if you drop the midrash that had it not been for Yisrael accepting the Torah, the world would have reverted back into nothingness. Amen. Okay, so we go on into uh, the next verses it talks about this this dangerous time that it was um, that they are living in and she's she goes into this, this thankful thankfulness that people are able to the free to teach Torah that there's no fighting needed that all the the nobles the sages sages the merchants should praise because they all have the freedom to, to learn Torah and to um, live live a Torah life and this is a whole idea when the, the Kenyan ruled other Jews, they would shoot arrows at locations where the Jews would gather water. Oh. And so they had two choices, either do without water 
or draw the water at the, the risk of their lo- losing their lives. Wow. And so this, this goes into uh, verse 11 where it says, Instead of the whir of arrows shot by enemy archers to the Jewish watering places, there will resound the voice of people talking about Hashem's kindnesses, the kindnesses concerning the open cities of Israel. For now Hashem's people were able to return to the gates of the open cities since there are no longer feared enemy attacks. And according to the Midrash, the above suk alludes to one of Hashem's kindnesses to the Jewry in exile. And it's kind of interesting because it, it goes on to say that his special kindness done was by dispersing them amongst the nations. Wow. So if government issues evil decrees against the Jews, at least those who resided elsewhere are spared. And this is this is hinted in in the this verse from the the Haftorah. Man. And so where it says uh the kindness that Hashem dispersed to Israel. And so the the uh is read just like like pose, like dispersing. Wow. <laughs> the dispersion is is actually a kindness of Hashem. Yes. So in the exile, even though we're spreading the four corners of the earth, it was not only for collecting converse, it was for um, our existence that that we may continue to be to live, and there's no nation, even if they grew, grew tired of us, they they there's no way they could exterminate us because we're everywhere. Wow, and you know that's obviously the account in Acts after Stephen was stoned, and it began the diaspora of those who believed in Yeshua and followed the Torah. Uh, it says that they were scattered throughout all of the known world of that time. So you kind of see that this righteous one who was sacrificed, you know, caused a uh, a panic, you know, and everything spread out from there. So what looks bad is actually, it's it's actually a blessing. I mean, it is sad. It's tragic that it had to happen. But at the same time, you know, we were able to spread out and also created an opportunity to make more converts and brings us to our next verse this whole idea of of making converts this idea of awakening them to the truth she says awake awake devora awake awake say the words of the song arise barak and lead away your captive son of abinoam and so there's a couple of different ideas of what's going on here. There's there's one idea that she's telling herself to to awake because she felt this idea of, of pride surging through her. And at that moment, the the Ruch Chodesh, the Shekhinah, um, actually left her, and she had to awaken herself back to have Ruch Chodesh. Whoa! But there's another another idea that this means she's she's giving a uh, encouragement to do not stay asleep in the sense that that one is apathetic to the great extent of the miracle that just put, took place and since so she's encouraging people to arouse themselves to appreciate it and it goes on this idea that the the word for sleep shana is related to the word yashan which is old and so it's context idea of as as time goes by uh, events become old and people forget the the wonder and and just the whole majesty and uh, of that of that event itself. 
And it says, as you encourage people, don't, don't be asleep. Don't forget what Hashem has done here. And she goes on to talk about Barak and says, arise, O Barak, and captive your prisoners. And the battle's already won, so it's a question, why is she, she saying it? Why isn't she saying it in past tense? Why is she saying it capture? Um, capture your prisoners. And it's the idea, she's trying to allude to the idea that one should feel as if it were going on at that moment. That at every moment, being called upon to arise and obey God's command to defend his people. Wow. Then, only then would he remain conscious of the miracle. And so it's like the idea of, of keeping God's God's wonder and his miracles and the and the just the amazing blessings he's put in your life, keeping them at the forefront of your memory, memory is gonna allow you to subdue the enemy and not allow him a foothold in your life. Are you alluding to, like, keep them before us morning and afternoon, like how we do the Shema and how we recite the miracles that Hashem performed for us to deliver us from Mitzrayim? That is a beautiful parallel. Because it sounds like that's what you're saying. And if you put that with what the distinguished gentleman, Shaul, wrote to the Thessalonians, the letter that he wrote to them, it says in chapter 5, for you are all B'nai Or and B'nai Yom, children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as the rest, but let us awake with sober-mindedness. For the one sleeping in the night and the ones indulging in drunkenness indulge in the night but we being the children of the day let us be sons of sober-mindedness having clothed ourselves and he goes on and on and on basically with everything that we don for shakarit service pretty much man so, so he did against tour uh, if he did, then I'm having a really hard time deciphering what is he really saying? Because <laughs> it sounds like he's talking about Shagarit and Marif and Minka and yeah. get you some. Yeah. <laughs> keep going, keep going. Uh, we get into verse 14 and she, she goes into talking about, um, Yehoshua and his, his battling Amalek. And he goes Ooh. in this of Shaul will in the future emerge from Benjamin. He will continue to war against Amalek at the head of the large army from your populace, Israel. Man. And he and, had the opportunity to like take him out completely. Yes. <laughs> Come on. You know, talking about who lived in the east of Jordan came down to battle and from the tribe of Zebulun, even learned scribes. So she goes on talking about all the tribes who actually joined in the battle. And you know, it's interesting because within uh, the word Ba'amamecha, where she talks about, there's two mims. And the Midrash goes on to say that this hints at two groups. And there's two different interpretations. There's one as Shaw, as the first group, as well as Mordecai and Esther. Ooh. And then the other idea is that it's Shaw and Mordecai. And so these these are all the people. It was it was talking about the, the the task to wipe out Amalek was given to Rachel's descendants. Oh, and how Saul 
King Saul began that, and Mordecai and Esther finished it. What? And, yes. <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting because um, you have you have this idea that that Shaul and Mordecai, no, sorry, Mordecai and Esther actually finished it, right? You have this man and woman duo, just like in this half Torah. You have this man and woman duo, Barach and uh, Devorah. Right. The and word so, and the blessing. Yes, the word and the blessing. And, you know, this this whole whole idea of Amalek. Amalek has the same gematria as the word for doubt. Yes. And so just the whole idea, these people are wiping out, out doubt from from the face of the earth. That That's their mission to destroy and like to destroy the doubt that's in our life that's separating us from Hashem. Man. Well, you know what that ultimately means. The only way to truly be victorious is to emulate the children of Rachel, which were none other than people who were connected to Yosef and who were self-sacrificing. Yes. Man. Exactly. So the whole illusion there that it's given us to about Yeshua and his ministry is incredible. Yeah, if you want to see a ministry of self-sacrifice, look at Messiah Yeshua all day. <laughs> this man did not eat sometimes, and people were worried about him. They're like, don't you need food? And he's like, I got food you don't know about. <laughs> Amen. And so she goes in this idea you know, talking about Yehoshua, Saul, and then she goes and talks about the tribes who battled that day. Manasseh, Zebulun, ended up taking the battle, Issachar, and most of these tribes were, they were like the, the scribes, and, and none of these men were really fighters who joined. Wow. And so it's interesting, she breaks this question, she's like, you know, deep are the thoughts of Reuben, because the tribe of Reuben was very close to the border, and so they are very familiar with warfare and combat, and so she's like, why didn't they not join us? Mm. And she, she goes on to critique Dan and Asher uh, for the same thing. You know, Dan got on their ships like they were going to flee, but then Asher didn't join the battle, but she kind of gave them, okay, like the benefit of the doubt. You know, they, they're actually in a position where they have to stay there and defend it, or else enemies could attack and evade the land. Right. But, you know, Reuben and Dan are really, you know, there's a lot of uh, this harsh words to them because they they failed to join them in battle. And, you know, she goes on this idea that she she herself, the Vora, was very well qualified to lecture those tribes who had selfishly absent themselves because they were concerned with their own security or convenience. You know, instead of the welfare of all Israel, they're only worried about their security, their own convenience, what was good for them. And this was, uh, you know, so she goes on to to really, you know, rebuke them for that. And there's actually numerous examples. We actually just got through some of those examples and and the book of Shemot. And it's about the midwives who were willing to self-sacrifice. Right. And so I call I call this the Robin Hood story time. Oh, nice. Bum, ba, da, da, bum, 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 bum. Story time. Come on. 
The Egyptian pharaoh instructed the Jewish midwives to strangle all the male Jewish infants in the course of the birth process. However, the midwives were in greater awe of God's commandments than pharaohs. At their own peril, they defied his orders. Moreover, since they entered many Jewish homes where food was scarce, they began collecting food from the homes of the rich Jews and distributed among the poor. Thanks to receiving proper nourishment, the poor Jewish mothers and had ample milk, which to suckle their newborns, their babies survived and thrived. Before each birth, the midwives would pray, You know, Hashem, that we do not obey Pharaoh in order to fulfill your in order to fulfill your words. Master Universe, please let the baby be born healthy, lest the Jews claim he is handicapped because the midwives attempted to kill him. Hashem accepted the tefillah, and every child was born perfectly normal, even if it had been destined to become lame or blind. Furthermore, the midwives prayed, don't ever let a child or mother die in childbirth, lest we be blamed for it. Again, the Almighty fulfilled their wish. No mother or infant ever died in childbirth. Because the midwives had risked their lives for the Jewish people, Hashem miraculously saved them from Pharaoh's revenge. Furthermore, they had descendants whom, in turn, were endowed with the trait of sacrifice themselves for the welfare of Jewry. The midwife, Yochebed, gave birth to the great leader Moshe, and the other, Miriam, to Chor, who, according to some opinions, lost his life when he rose to rebuke the people for the sin of the golden calf. Miriam's grandson was Batzelel, about whom it is said that, while building the Mishkan, he devoted himself with such self-sacrifice to each detail of its construction that the Torah attached his name to that of every single holy vessel. The End Yeah, so that's pretty much all the time we have tonight. Hasis is now going to be taken away to a padded room and examined. <laughs> wow. So, you know, this last phrase really stands out. You know, you have this whole Robin Hood moment where they, they, they take from the rich, they give to the poor. Yes. To but then there's this, this end phrase that talks about one of the people who was brought about by this was Batsello, which is the, like the image of God. Who's attached to every furnishing of the yeah. Mishkan. Like, what? And so we talk about a lot about how Yeshua parallels these aspects within the Mishkan, all these vessels, and there's a definite precedent for that. The very image of God is associated with every vessel in the tabernacle. And if, which, you, if you needed to really bring that together some more, as if you do, but... Mishkan itself literally means the dwelling of Hashem, i.e., like Yochanan chapter 1, Hashem made his dwelling with us, he tabernacled with us, he mishkaned with us. So, keep going. Sleeko. Yeah. No, no, it's good, it's good. And moving forward, we get to verse 19. It says, the Canaanite kings came with large armies to fight on Sisera's side. We mentioned the size of that army earlier. But they didn't, these kings, there's these 31 kings who came from the other nations. Mm. And they didn't even ask for anything. So, you know, you kind of contrasting Reuben and, and Dan, who, like, didn't help, you know, who had every right, who had every reason to go and help the army of Israel. Then you have that contrasted with the loyalty of these 31 kings who joined Sisera, and they didn't even accept any form of payment. Yikes. 
all they wanted was a, a, a claim to Eretz Israel. You know, so the the whole the whole idea of the Crusades is really nothing new. Everyone's been trying to, you know, take what belongs to the Jewish people, what belongs to what Hashem says is Israel's, is the Jewish people's. But that's a side note. Oh, man. <laughs> goes out talking about what actually took place at this moment. How did Hashem win this battle? And, you know, Sisera was very proud of his legions. They all served him voluntarily. He had thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of men, if not a hundred thousand men there. So Hashem repaid him measure for measure. Hashem took his servants in the sky, who also served faithfully without remuneration, which joined the battle. And they helped kill all the Canaanites, the Canaanites together with their armies. And so it mentions these these stars would actually um, radiate this intense heat that will cause the men to like swelter in their suits. And so they try to take refuge in the waters in the, the Kashan Brook. And, you know, it's just this, this tiny brook that goes in there. But as soon as they went to those waters, it started swelling and ended up consuming all the men. Ooh. You know, it, it mentions this idea of it being um, somewhat of a of an ancient uh, stream, right? And it was actually this is actually because it's it's alluded to in the commentaries on Parsha Bashlach because the Yam Suf had this kind of um, debate, if you will, with the Shem. Yes, Shem promised them the body of the six hundred chariots from Pharaoh. And he says, no, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the Kishon Brook as a guarantor, and he will repay, repay you, uh, like, with 900 men. Wow. <laughs> Man. And so, that's exactly what happened. Um, it actually drained into the Yom Suf. So, wow. you know, it said, he promised the Yom Suf that he would recompense with more dead bodies in the 600. Appointing the brook of Kashan as a guarantor, indeed, Sisera's nine hundred man chariots were swept into the Yamsuf, as it implies, Nachal Kodumim, that the brook was a guarantor since Moshe's time. Wow, Hashem will make good on His promises, even to water. Amen. Seriously. Yeah. The Yamsuf was eager to please Hashem by drowning the, the enemies of Israel. And so this is why it, one of the reasons why I was so eager to to have um, to take take their enemies and, and hold on to them. Wow. And she goes on to talk about the Exodus story, and she goes on to talk about what happened in the Canaanite soldiers. It says their their horses' feet beat since their shoes slipped off due to the heat from the above that heated the muddy riverbed from the galloping the galloping of the mighty ones who tried to flee. Essentially, the word for galloping there, it's written twice. It's called uh, medaharot haharot. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, if you actually spell that backwards, oh, man. you get the word, if you're looking at it, you get the word Torah. And the first one, me, or me daharot, is the blood of Torah. Oh, yes. That's amazing. <laughs> So two Torahs in blood, basically, is what you're talking about. Yes, you have you have the Torah in blood, 
and you have the one that has the dollet in front of it, the fourth one, like the the gate, the door, if you will. Oh my word! Oh, you have the idea of two Torahs. You have the oral Torah, and then you have the written Torah in here. Yes. And then also the two Mashiachs, the one who, like you said, the word Dom yes. is the one who's bloodied, and the one who brings in the exiles from the four corners of the earth. Oh. The bloody one and Meshach ben David, the one who gathers in the exiles. And interestingly enough, if that wasn't of much as a, of a illusion, it says all the above miracles took place in the night of Pesach, when the people of the stars departing from their courses, they filled with wonder. They had never seen anything like it. And so, you know, there's that. There's also the idea that the covet of parts took took place at the same time. Not the same year, of course, but the same night. <laughs> so, all, all these miraculous events happened at this time. Wow. Wow. And it goes on this idea of who this curse morose. And it goes on the question, who who is this morose that's being cursed? And who there's different interpretations. It was a Jewish city near the battlefield where the inhabitants didn't come to help. Um, there's also... The idea that it was a star above the battlefield or an important person living in the vicinity. And, you know, there's there's actually no contradiction in these verses. And the resolution is the star did not come to the aid of Ben Israel because the inhabitants of the region made passive. And so without this act of participation on part of the people, it lacked the impetus to assist Ben Israel. Ooh. So this this whole idea. Um, brought down here, so they curse. They curse this this town, and this is what we read earlier about um, Barak sounding four hundred shofars in order to um, commit like a ban on this on this town and these people. Wow! And then it goes on to say, whoever helps um, this allusion to this, it says it says to the help of a shim, and so this idea that whoever helps Ben Israel is considered as if he'd helped. The Almighty Himself. Oh. Mm. <clears throat> All right. So we get to the story. Of, I want to mention a few things about Sisera and Yael. All right. Um, real quick, the question: Why didn't she hammer? Why did she use the the peg and the hammer? Why? The answer is she wanted to fulfill the Torah. She wanted to avoid. The, the possibility of transgressing the law that a woman may not wear a man's garments, which the sages go on to say that's carrying weapons of war as right, well. Right. And so even though the sword might have been handy, might have been easier, she risked her life even in doing what she did with the, the, the hammer and the nail. Also talks about uh, Sisera and that he actually had this thought of doing Teshuvah. He realized that Shem was in control on his way fleeing there. Um, and, you know, because of the thoughts of Teshuvah, he was actually rewarded with righteous descendants. One of those being Rabbi Akiva, which is very interesting if you, if you think about that. Wow. Um, but he tried, he did try to make attempts at Yael and take her by force and many other wicked things. And so Yikes. she realized that if I let him live, he would continue afflicting Israel. And so she knocked him out. Uh, yeah, just a, <laughs> <it's> an understatement. <laughs> she knocked him out, 
And by that, I mean the nail, the peg that went into his skull, into his temple. Yes, she nailed it. You know, uh, quick contrast, you know, we have Israel who appointed a leader, um, a, a, a woman leader over them, a prophet, and then they give all this praise to Yael. But then you get into verse 30 and you see the contrast of how uh, Judaism and how Israel has treated women and how the nations treat women. Ooh. So it says in verse 30, they surely find, they're surely finding and dividing the booty, giving one or two girls to each man. This is um, what is interpreted to be Sisra's mother trying to figure out what's going on, where's my son. And it mentions, just to highlight that, it says, just drawing attention to the moral, morally rampant in Sisra's camp. So it mentions the Jewish girls as being divided up like the rest of the booty, one per two men. Wow. And so you, you just kind of think of the wickedness of these people and what they would have done right. had they overtaken Israel. Which brings us to our, our very last verse, verse 31. May all your enemies thus perish, O Hashem, but Hashem's friends shall be as the sun that increases in strength. This is the very end of our song, and the narrative actually continues. The land was quiet for 40 years. <laughs> so it goes on to talk about the future, how the sun's light will be seven times more powerful than during the six days of creation. Yes. Similarly, Hashem's friends will in the future be distinguished with brilliant rays of glory shining from their faces. And so it's like, hey, I want that to be me. You know, so right. <laughs> this brings us to them. Who are Hashem's friends? Who are, who are these people? And the Midrash goes on to say that those who bear shame and insult without responding in kind, who fulfill God's will lovingly and accept suffering joyfully, these are his friends. And so, like this whole idea that Hashem's, they're, they're called Hashem's friends because even when they suffer, they continue to believe in Hashem's goodness and serve him faithfully. And so their great love merits this great reward about their, their face shining brilliantly. Mm, and so you take this back to when Mashiach actually called his Talmudim friends. That's right. And, and what that what that meant for them. You know, there's all these these songs that's, that might be off-quoted. Off this is, I'm a, I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. You know, but, you know, you, you kind of, in the, in the joyful tune of that, you miss the, the whole concept of what it really means. It's, if someone insults you, you don't respond. You you bear that. That's right. If if you're suffering, you accept that joyfully, and you kind of get a deeper look of, of why the Talmudim later on in, in Acts when they were flogged for the sake of their belief in Mashiach, right? Away with with joy, because they knew at that point they they were like Yeshua said, friends. They knew that they earned it because they're suffering for His namesake. Wow. And that word would be Havarim. You know, beloved fellow friends. Mm -hmm. So just to tag with that for practical takeaways, because I definitely feel like the fellowship of sufferings is what what is something that is a beautiful takeaway for this and something that will definitely be a challenge for us because being in the clouds following Hashem and hearkening to his voice on a daily basis, that takes work and that is a challenge. 
And like you said, we're saving the world. So let us remember these things. First up, the letter to Philippi says in chapter three, I want to know Messiah and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to him in death. The letter to Rome says, and if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Messiah. And indeed, if we suffer with him, then we will also be glorified. And last but not least, you know, we got to bring up the homeboy Kepha, who says in his writings, he says, but rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Messiah so that you may be overjoyed or seven times brighter <laughs> at the revelation of his glory. That is from First Kepha 4.13. Wow. <laughs> so that's all I got to say about that. Brookshin will be, you know, Brechanashah lay down. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing when you put everything in context. You will glean, you will glean the most from the Brit Hadashah, everyone, when you study the Torah portion, and when you learn the case precedents as written down in the oral Torah, and you connect the dots. When you do that, the Brit Hadashah is no longer this weird, defragmented, overly Greco-Romanized, churchy type thing. It is very, very Jewish, and it's very, very deep. And when things don't seem to match up and things are out of place because you have Torah, because you have the experience of your observance, it will definitely line up. So, yeah, when, when, seems, when things, uh, two statements seem to contradict, then you definitely know you're reading a Jewish work. Ooh. <laughs> oh, Just, did you? That's the reason why we say yes to two contradictory, contradictory, uh, contradictory statements or questions if you will wow you know, so just just you know if you ever read a section of gamar or anything like that then uh you'll definitely know what i'm talking about but i'd, I'd like to just do do something a little little different and instead of leaving a, a practical takeaway for the half torah and you know maybe it does relate a little bit but uh since we have uh coming up i'd like Ooh. to give it a little reflection for that as a practical takeaway Man, throw some fruit out there. Okay, just I, I do it later, but you know, uh, see what you did. <laughs> do it later, but we probably won't be on until after uh, Tuba Shabbat. Well, yes, Tuba Shabbat is this upcoming Yom Rishon. So, right? Is that <laughs> all right? So, yeah. can you hear me? I can. Was that the timer oh. going off? <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so it says, uh, this is from a little reflection from Rabbi Asher Balanson. And it says this, quote, quoting Rashi at the very beginning, Tuvashvat, the new year for trees, is in the middle of the winter. Even though the fruit has not yet appeared, we consider it as if the new year has already begun because the sap has risen. And in the sap is stored the inner strength of the trees, from Rashi. And Rabbi Asher goes on to say, one must learn from this how to act towards other people. How many times do we pay attention just to the outside of a person, his clothes and appearance, and not to the inside, his neshama? The person standing in front of us can appear barren without fruit or flowers, but deep down he has inner strength that can bring forth very special abilities, his fruit. 
If one sees a bare tree and, neg and neglects to care for it, its fruit will not come out. Similarly, if we don't take care of the person in front of us, his fruits and potential will also not come out. Wow. So just just a, a little reflection uh, for Tuvishvat about, about caring for others and allowing people actually to develop develop their good attributes and pulling that out of people and encouraging them and helping them in their time of need and standing by them. You know, we read in the half tour how Reuven and Dan, they didn't come to help. And yet, you know, here, here were the Gentile nations, the Canaanites of all people shaming them and that all their Kings actually came to help without even asking for, for a single cent or even food for that matter. Wow. You know, so, let us let us be people who, who care for our brothers and and try to pull out the best in people and look for the best in people and and make sure we're like Devorah above reproach ourselves and the way we carry ourselves the way we act. Amen. Amen. Can you hear that song? Hashem. So just a correction, uh, Tuba Shavat will be the 15th of Shavat, which begins at sundown on Yom Rishon, going into Yom Shani. So as we uh, partake of the Seder and the fruits, may we definitely remember this beautiful Hiddush that Hasiz has beautifully elucidated for us to, to bring out the best in others. And as we're partaking of the fruit, may it be so. Man. Well, Hasiz Baz, Todarabah, bless you so much for sharing wonderful elucidations on Haftarah Beshalach. And as is so true, and as we always say, what do we know? What do we know? Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Zur Kol HaOlamim, Zadik Bekol HaDorot, Ha'el ha'ne'eman ha'omer ve'oseh hamdaber. Um kayem shekol davarav emet vazerek. Ne'eman atahu Adonai Eloheinu ve'ne'emanim. Devareka ve'davar echad. Midvarcha o'achor lo yashuv recham ki el melek ne'eman ve'rakaman atah. Baruch Ata Adonai, Ha'el Haneeman Bekol Devarav, Biskut Mashiach Yeshua, Amen. Amen. All right, everyone. Shalom, Shavuot Tov, and many blessings, and may you have a wonderful Tuba Shabbat.